1: Generation Anthropocene is supported by Stanford School of Earth, Energy, and Environmental Sciences. Find out more at earth.stanford.edu. We're also supported by Worldview Stanford, whose mission is to create interdisciplinary learning experiences for professionals. To learn more about Worldview, visit worldview.stanford.edu.
0: 4.6 billion.
1: The Earth forms.
0: Cambrian 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian-Triassic 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous-Tertiary 65 million.
1: Meteor kills the dinosaurs.
0: 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene 200,000. Humans 20,000.
2: Agricultural 250. Revolution. Industrial
0: revolution. 60. Great animals. acceleration. The Anthropocene.
2: Welcome to Generation Anthropocene. I'm your host, Miles Traer. Today's story is about the climate negotiations that are about to begin in Paris. And obviously, the recent tragic events there have cast these negotiations in a different light. But presumably, you tuned into today's show to hear about the meetings, or maybe just for a momentary escape. So that's what we're going to do. Today's show was brought to us by Laura Cruz, who is currently in Paris to explore the negotiations firsthand. Unfortunately, because of her travel schedule, she was unable to voice the story herself. But she graciously handed the reins over to producers Mike Osborne and Leslie Chang. Here they are with Preparing for Paris.
1: In a few days, the world will come together in Paris to try once again to reach a global agreement to address climate change.
0: The Paris conference isn't the first or even tenth gathering of its kind. Paris is actually our 21st attempt to compel the governments of the world to do something about greenhouse gas emissions.
1: That's why you might see the conference mentioned in the media as COP21. COP stands for Conference of the Parties, and it happens every year in a different city. Some of the COP meetings wind up being more important than others, and this year in Paris is slated to be one of the most critical.
0: As we've been hearing from scientists for years, there's an urgent need for the international community to come together and take action to curb climate change. So we wanted to know, what would it take for the Paris conference to be
3: a success?
1: Aaron Strong is a Stanford researcher who studies climate change policy, and he's traveled to some of the negotiations in the past.
3: So I think the term most often used to describe one of these meetings is that it's a zoo, and it really is. Uh, There are Thousands and thousands of people there. The atmosphere is excited and energetic. It's sleepless. It's go, go, go.
1: The whole reason we have these COP meetings is because decades ago, everyone agreed that we needed a coordinated international effort to address greenhouse emissions.
3: The United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change is an international agreement that's signed by pretty much all of the countries of the world. So the, the goal is to avoid dangerous anthropogenic interference with the climate system. Um, that's the stated and agreed-upon goal of all the countries in the world.
1: Now, it may seem to most people like the last two decades of climate negotiations haven't been particularly effective. But it's worth remembering the countries of the world did sign the Kyoto Protocol back in 1997.
0: According to Aaron, Kyoto had a fatal flaw. Developed countries like the U.S. were obligated to reduce greenhouse emissions, but developing countries like China and India were not.
1: This is the main reason that, in the end, the United States Congress did not ratify the Kyoto Treaty.
3: A few months before we went to Kyoto, and this is at the end of 1997, the U.S. Senate passed a resolution, 95 to 0, That was a simple statement that said we will not ratify anything that doesn't include binding commitments from China and India and other major developing countries. We just won't do it. Period.
1: A lot of people now think that the Kyoto Protocol was a failure because we were trying to fix climate change with one big ambitious plan.
0: A more realistic climate agreement might need to take smaller steps to account for the fact that different countries around the world have different capacities for what they can do.
1: One of the go-to sources for understanding climate negotiations is New York Times reporter Andy Revkin, who writes the Dot Earth blog. And he told us that these disagreements between wealthy nations and developing nations have been a sticking point for a long time.
2: A lot of diplomacy in the environment was premised on the idea that that everyone doesn't step at the same time. That The basic idea is that we have common goals, common but differentiated responsibilities, meaning, hey, you guys, rich countries, you've been at this for 100 years burning fossil fuels. And, and that's made you rich, and it's made you more resilient in the face of climate experience, so you've got to do more first.
0: But in the years since Kyoto, China's economy has exploded. When it comes to reducing emissions, it's become clear that we can't stick to this traditional division between developing and developed countries. Some of the tension now is coming because there are countries that still
2: call themselves developing countries that that's creating tension because the united states and europe are saying hey you guys china a couple other countries you're you're no longer you know among the poor and struggling nations of the world you need to do more
0: throughout the 2000s these tensions grew and they set the stage for negotiations at the 2009 cop meeting in copenhagen
1: Copenhagen came at a critical time because key provisions of the Kyoto Protocol were set to expire. And the US had a new president. Obama had campaigned on climate change, so expectations were high.
2: And a lot of our rhetoric and a lot of expectations around these climate treaty meetings in the in the past was that, ah, this is the magic one. Copenhagen was very much that. So the language leading up to Copenhagen from the UN was seal the deal.
3: And you get on the ground there and there are these big signs that say Copenhagen, And you had all of these, you know, 50,000 people there um, just uh, all kind of pushing for this, this deal to happen.
1: But the Copenhagen conference did not go smoothly. While there were some points of progress, it became increasingly clear as the days went on that the countries of the world were going to have a difficult time arriving at a binding agreement.
0: As time was running out, heads of state, including President Obama, arrived to try and salvage the situation.
1: The increased event security made navigating the negotiations a nightmare, to the point where many delegates were actually unable to get into the negotiating rooms.
0: They had little choice but to wait and see what would happen
3: next. And I think everyone just kind of figured, you know, this always goes down in the wire, always goes down to the last minute, and then something gives. And it fell apart. So we just kind of hold ourselves up in the top floor of this building in a little conference room we had reserved and kind of waited to hear what was happening. And eventually at one in the morning, um, there was a representative from the State Department just sat down in a chair and just collapsed and was just like, this is crazy. Like, what happened? And there was like this little tiny window into what failure looked like.
1: There are a lot of factors that might explain why Copenhagen fell apart. But one of the main reasons people point to was the push for a top-down agreement.
0: That strategy is no longer on the table for Paris. The, the prospects of Paris coming
2: out with a legally binding instrument, uh, constraining emissions is, is zero. It's not going to happen. Um, and someone some would say that that's failure. Uh, I would say, actually, it's a, an acknowledgment that... Um, that we are in a different and more realistic frame for these talks than we were in Copenhagen 2009. That was the last place where anyone thought that there could be a truly binding set of targets and timetables.
0: The other important acknowledgement here is the political reality in the United States. It's clear to everyone that the U.S. Congress
3: is unlikely to pass climate legislation. Anything the Obama administration brings back from Paris that requires ratification is simply not going to happen. The agreement in Paris cannot require US ratification to move forward because otherwise there is no way in heck that you're going to get the, uh, the Senate to do that, um, given the political climate right now.
2: The Senate has to give consent. The president can't just sign something. That's limited. That's constrained even what can be negotiated in, in Paris or any of the pre- previous treaties. Uh, that, that's a big roadblock to something more substantive at the international level.
0: In the months leading up to Paris, each country has submitted a pledge detailing its own commitments. These pledges, called Intended Nationally Determined Contributions, or INDCs, will be woven together into a comprehensive bottom-up agreement.
1: A particularly tricky aspect of this new design is to figure out how we will hold nations accountable. There's no enforcing body, no carbon emissions police force tasked with making sure that everyone is doing what they said they'll do.
0: But Andy Revkin told us that there are a lot of new tools and technologies that will help keep everyone honest. Overall, we'll be heading to a world where there's more and more
2: independent ways to measure what countries are doing or not doing. And um, that all adds to the validity that you can have a self-reported system. But there will be this capacity to do some ground-truthing that wasn't there 5 or 10 years ago.
0: As of now, every country has submitted their INDC. However, there will still be a lot more to deal with in Paris.
1: Emissions reductions are only part of the equation. Another point of contention will be climate finance. One
0: positive that did come out of Copenhagen is that developed countries agreed they would contribute billions of dollars every year into a pool of money called the Green Climate Fund.
1: The idea is that the money can be used by poor countries for climate-related aid.
2: There is a recognition that that global warming is happening and that countries that are poor are fundamentally more vulnerable to the bad things that climate systems do drought flooding heat waves snowstorms if you're poor it's harder and you can say there is an ethical um, obligation of countries that already are you know got their wealth mainly by facilitated by burning out of fossil fuels have um, an obligation to assist countries that are still on the way up and that are vulnerable.
0: So far, only $10 billion has been added to the Green Climate Fund, and the goal is to have developed countries contributing $100 billion per year by 2020.
1: Understandably, many in the developing world see this initial $10 billion as inadequate. And some people say that success in Paris will be determined more by financial aid commitments than emissions reductions.
0: The governments of the world have agreed that we're not looking for a one-size-fits-all, top-down agreement. And all the participating countries have already submitted their INDCs.
1: And even if not all the Green Climate Fund money has come through yet, at least there's an agreement that richer countries are helping out poorer countries on climate impacts and adaptation. And there's talk about more frequent convenings to make sure that momentum is not lost.
0: According to Andy Revkin, all this counts as definite progress. He says Paris is already a success, even before it's happened.
2: I already think Paris is a success, just because of the, the um, factors that countries have aligned, lined up ahead of time. The countries that have stepped forward early, like the United States and China, they basically were pre-arranging that there will be um, something coming out of Paris that can be defined as a success. Paris is a, is a success because of what's been done ahead of time.
1: There's another school of thought here, though. If you take all the INDCs and do the math on their commitments, we are not going to achieve a target that holds us to under 2 degrees Celsius of warming.
0: Which, for years, has been the target that climate scientists have said we need to hit if we want to avoid the worst effects of anthropogenic warming. Now, some scientists say that the 2 degree limit may be a somewhat arbitrary target, but all scientists agree that the risks compound with every bit of additional warming.
1: So, if all the emissions pledges made at Paris don't lead to aggressive and immediate action, can we really call the summit a success?
0: After all, what's more important here? Is it that we come to a political agreement where all the countries of the world sign a series of documents?
1: Or is it to actually prevent dangerous anthropogenic interference with the climate system?
3: The, the other part of this is to say, look, all of these pledges that we're going to put together in a package and call a success don't achieve the stated goal of all countries. You know, where we get right now is about 2.7 degrees warming. Um, That doesn't get us to two. So one way to look at that is that's a failure.
0: There's no question that Paris is a recalibration of expectations built on past failures. The political and economic realities in countries around the world means that we have to reset the bar for how we define success.
1: Meanwhile, the stakes are as high as ever. Climate change remains an urgent issue, and the pressure to take action will only grow as we continue to feel more and more of the consequences of accelerated greenhouse warming.